From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. There is the stated importance of what's important when you select a professional services provider, and then there's analytically derived. They're not the same thing. They are different lists. And to me, the list that matters is the one that's analytically derived because it force ranks and it really reveals what is associated with making decisions. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Amy Fuller, the CMO of Accenture. Over the course of her career, Amy has delved deep into what it takes to build a powerful brand. She's worked with some of the top B2B and B2C brands in the world on both the agency and the client side. In today's episode, she'll discuss how she capitalized on this experience to spearhead one of the most ambitious brand initiatives in Accenture's history. Along the way, we'll take on the heady topic of capitalism, how it's evolving, and the responsibility companies have to create value for a much broader range of stakeholders. She refers to it as just capitalism and provides a fresh point of view that's both innovative and pragmatic. Let's jump into the conversation. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Justin. It's good to be here. Well, Amy, I'm so excited to get into several of the experiences that you've had in your career. Particularly, I want to get into a major global rebrand that you were behind at Accenture. However, before we go there, I want to go back in time to uh, a point where you were a small girl. You actually, your family owned an island. And we need to talk about this because I can't say that I've actually had a guest on the program who has owned an entire island. I have visions of maybe Hawaii with resorts and lots of fancy things happening on us. Break down, what what was the situation and and tell us about your island. So it's the opposite of everything that you might imagine that the word island conjures. My parents made an incredible decision, I guess more than 50 years ago, which is uh, there's a place in upstate New York called the Thousand Islands, and literally no one knows about it. There's the salad dressing, which was invented in the region, but it's otherwise this collection of hundreds uh, hundreds and hundreds of islands, some in Canada, some in the U.S. and the St. Lawrence River. And uh, my father used to fish, and his buddies took him to the Thousand Islands to fish. And he thought, eh, no big deal. I'm from Florida, where there are the alleged 10,000 lakes. So, you know, Thousand Islands, that's nothing. Pales in comparison. So they got there in the dark, went to a state park on an island. He woke up, looked around, and was absolutely transfixed. And so when an island came up for sale, which never, ever happens, uh, he and my mother pounced on it. And it was about two hours away from where we lived. And it had literally nothing on it. It had a fantastic dock that's still there, which is a feat of dock building. And for years, weekends and weeks in the summer, we camped. And the first thing that my parents built was an outhouse. And that was the only thing for a good long period of time. Very practical. Very pragmatic. It was, it was quite practical. And so we tented and did uh, pr- primitive tent camping for years upon years upon years. And it is the single most formative influence 
of my life more than any individual or, or moment or anything. Well, first of all, I'm excited to finally know where the Thousand Island dressing comes from. The secret sauce on the burgers I enjoy has never been the same since. You need to know the, the origin of condiments, I Indeed. think. Indeed. And we'll talk, we should talk more about condiments. <laughs> I think that might come up later in the in the episode. Let's put a let's put a pin in that one. So surely you must have had some kind of harrowing experiences growing up with an entire island to yourself. What what was one of those moments that really left an impact? Well, the one that is truly unforgettable for my sister and me happened pretty early on. And uh, my mother had a Girl Scout troop and decided that we would take all of the Girl Scouts in the troop to the island for the weekend. And so we had multiple boatloads of girls to transport. And the only way to get to the island is in our own boat, which at that point in time was kind of a small boat. And so the first load of girls were my sister and me, and I think we were maybe seven and nine or thereabouts, our black lab and one or two other nine-year-old girls. So my parents dropped us off and then went back to the mainland to get the rest of the girls. And they were gone for hours, hours upon hours upon hours. And in that space of time, it got dark, it started to rain, and we realized, okay, our one shelter is the outhouse. So we went into the outhouse, and it was a pretty nice outhouse. It had a big bench where the you know the, the seat is and uh, and room to sit. But what it didn't have is a door that shut properly because my father and mother and friends had built it, but they actually didn't know what they were doing. So they didn't know how to put on hinges so you could close the door. So as it got windier and rainier and darker, we decided we've got to have a way of keeping the door shut. And so we picked up um, a towel rack that hadn't been you know, affixed to the wall yet and a piece of rope and tied one end of the towel rack to the rope and the other end of the towel rack, we put on the door handle on the inside so that we could sit on the bench and hold on to the rope and keep the door shut. And so this was the thing that pounced into my head when I was on a panel a few years ago and was asked the question without any preparation of what's an, you know, a good example of innovation in your life. Well, that was it. Uh, let's try to think that that wasn't the high point at age seven and it went downhill from there. But it was, you know, a good little practice episode of, you know, make the best of what you have. But what really struck with me is I was not scared. Mm. My sister, two years older and wiser, was terrified and remembers the incident differently to this day. And it was the, the bliss, you know, blissful ignorance um, that not knowing everything is good. It's actually really a benefit because I was not worried. And eventually my parents did show up. Deep into the night, they'd gotten stuck on a shoal. My mother had actually tried to summon the Coast Guard using Morse code from a flashlight. Didn't exactly work out in time. They they showed up with the proper equipment, you know, long past the time my parents had actually arrived and pitched the tents. And we must have made dinner and went to sleep. And then the Coast Guard showed up on the dock. So... This is an intense family. I'm imagining your mom. She's got her flashlight. She's like flashing for help. You guys are in the outhouse holding the door shut with the uh, with the the towel rack. That's impressive. 
You know, and we smile a little bit about the towel rack and the rope tied to it, but in the mind of a seven-year-old, that's what innovation looks like. And it's not necessarily the thing per se that you came up with so much as the fact that you felt empowered to say, I can figure this out. What do I have? What's the problem? And let's just get the solution in place. Well, exactly. I mean, we, we all need to hang on to our, our, our seven-year-old in so yeah. many ways, but definitely they look around. What do you see? Let's use what you see and something very useful can come out of it. Is, yeah. You know, I, I had the opportunity once to attend a session with Seth Godin. One of the questions that someone asked is, how do you teach kids grit? And he said, the way that you teach kids grit is that you challenge them early and often. And that really stuck with me. And I remember going home and I said, well, how can I challenge my kids? And they wanted to go to a movie one weekend. And I said, great, I will fund this expedition, but you need to figure out how we're going to get there, what time we need to be there, what time we need to leave the house. And so they got on the internet and they researched the bus schedule. And then they had to pull up Google Maps to find out where the bus stop was. I had no idea where the bus stop was. And so we get... We get to the bus stop and we're all sitting at the bus stop. And it turns out we were on the wrong side of the road because the bus was going the wrong direction. So the, the bus, you know, the kids realize it's going the wrong direction and we're still sitting at the bus stop. And I look at him and I say, well, what are we going to do? And my oldest daughter says, run. <laughs> so we get behind the bus. <laughs> and I don't know if you ever watched the show um, Fat Albert where they have the opening sequence where they have all the fat Albert gang running along in a big dirt cloud, dust cloud. But that's what we looked like running behind the bus in the middle of the road. But we caught the bus. The bus stopped. We got on the bus and we ended up going to the movie. And my kids talk about that to this day about how they figured out how to go to a movie when they were seven years old. And that I think that sense of empowerment hopefully is, has stayed with them. Yeah, that is uh, th that is absolutely terrific, and I love that advice about grit. I love that. Yeah, that probably holds true in a in a bunch of different situations. Yeah, challenge them early and often, and and it just builds on itself. All right, so you uh, you were an island dweller for a large part of your childhood, left an indelible mark on you. I also wanted to talk about your education as a French literature major. I couldn't let that go by. Listeners to the show know that I was an English major. So we have to allocate the appropriate amount of time to the literature majors out there because there aren't many of us. No, there aren't. <laughs> so tell us how you got there and uh, what you took from that experience. Well, so I had one desire in high school and probably before then, which was I wanted to go to Paris. I don't know why, by the way. I have no idea what the, where that came from, but I, I really wanted to go to Paris. And I, I happened to have an absolutely wonderful middle school French teacher. It was my most favorite teacher maybe of my whole life. When I got to college, I really didn't know what I was doing. To say the very least, I did not know what I was doing. I thought, I really want to spend my junior year in Paris. That's what I want to do most of anything, period, out there. And if I major in French, I'll, I'll kind of have to, because you can't really learn the language without immersion. But it was absolutely fabulous, I have to say. And now what I find on the other side of it, is that textual analysis is an incredibly vital skill. Mm -hmm. And when you're working in advertising, as I did for many, 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 many years, it's a medium of few words. And so textual analysis is actually incredibly relevant, as it is for communications across the board. 
And there were t- there were only really two moments, though, when the French piece mattered. And the first was my very first job in advertising. And I was interviewing and it was time to interview with the big chiefs, you know, the group account director. In those days, at that moment in time for me, big mega dude, you know, <laughs> terrifying. He looked at my resume. He said, oh, so you say you speak French. And then he started speaking French to me to trip me. It was his trick. He had a couple of trick questions and that was one of them. Wow. But luckily, you know, the brain cells were still quite young. I was fresh enough off the experience that I could respond and ended up landing the job. And then that was the beginning of the advertising career. And then for this job, incredibly, the uh, the most absolutely wonderful CEO who's no longer with us, who hired me uh, more than three years ago, is French. And so I thought, I am not... I am not discussing anything about French, about France. I mean, he might see it on my CV, but I'm not revealing anything because the hope is that understanding French will be useful with a French CEO. Of course, his English was perfection, but it did turn out that a lot of our management meetings were in Paris. And so that was lovely to get to return um, as a business traveler often. And many of my key colleagues are also French. Yeah. And I would never attempt to actually speak French to them, but it's it's been really useful, actually. The whole idea of translation is literally what you do when you study literature in another language, but it's also, well, I guess it's, I was gonna say metaphorically, it's actually literally what you do as a marketing person, always, because you're translating business goals into marketing activity or into brand thoughts. And it's, it's, it is very much a simultaneous translation exercise. So I think I am very pro humanities for the sake of marketing, actually. I think it is the skill that will endure beyond all skills and literature in particular. Yeah. Well, I have very strong feelings on this. I often point out what makes a diamond brilliant are the facets, all of the facets. And as a human being, what makes an individual brilliant is the multidimensionality that that person can bring into a conversation or a problem that they're trying to solve. One of the things that always impressed me when I was studying English literature is we go through periods. If you study Coleridge and Wordsworth, they were people of science. They were also people of literature. They were just intrigued by their world and in describing the world and in understanding their world. I fear, though, that we now live in a a world of specialization where almost by necessity, you have to get ultra specialized in one thing. And I can't help but think that we're leaving something uh, behind when we when we lose that multidimensionality associated with what folks did previously. Well, uh, absolutely. And I love your diamond metaphor, Justin. I, uh, I read a definition of creativity early on in my years in advertising that had to do with unexpected connections. Mm -hmm. And so to make unexpected connections, which I do think is a wonderful description of, well, innovation and, and creativity, it's, you know, you got to look at the forest, the tree will only get you so far. It really is about looking around and also seeing things that are happening, especially for a marketer in uh, life overall, Mm -hmm. in popular culture, and then life overall. I've always been amazed by this, that the term Gen Z came out of a novel, came out of a Mm. novel by a writer named uh, Douglas Copeland, who's a Canadian uh, fiction writer. And that was the first usage of the term. 
And this was, you know, a couple of decades ago, and it really has endured. You know, uh, I uh, I think that there is such a rich repository that we can go to to be inspired. I think of like Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit and what he anticipated in that book, or even you know, some more recent works, but unlocking the imagination and imagining what the world could be is always the predecessor to the actual innovation that follows. So I love that. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. You actually started your career then in marketing at an agency, and I'm always intrigued to learn about the path that CMOs take to their role as the leader of marketing. The agency has its its pros, it has its cons. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned starting your journey in that place? Well, working in an agency is the most incredible education. Of course, it was my education. That's why I think it's incredible. But I, I have such appreciation for the environments that I was in, the amount of responsibility that you're able to have as an entry level, and in my case, assistant account executive is phenomenal. And what you must learn in order to thrive about influence versus power, and that's true even as senior people in agencies, it's still, there's never power, it's always influence, but those are the most valuable skills that anyone could ever have in business. And the fact that you are, again, always under-resourced, or at least I was always in environments that were mm-hmm. always under-resourced. And so what that means is that you can really accumulate a lot of responsibility quite early on in life. And then that serves you well for indefinite, you know, indefinite things that go on in your career in terms of having responsibility when you when you get it only by doing and only by delivering and only by uh, being able to influence uh, the right things to happen. I also found that it was agency life is a wonderful environment to learn about, of course, the creative process. And I think regardless of where you are in marketing and maybe other things, that creativity is the competitive driver and differentiator. And even as highly targeted as marketing has become, which is a gift to efficiency, you still can't buy engagement. You have to intrigue and entice engagement with the messages and the things that you're putting out in the world. And that is creativity. And so what is learned in an agency is what that creative process looks like, um, how hard it is, how how it's important not to be discouraged and how things can turn on a dime from having nothing for the meeting to having fabulous things for the meeting of how input from various sources makes things better. So it it really, uh, I am so grateful. And it was an era in advertising also. It was still a mass media era when I joined, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think is a different uh, different thing as well. And it was just terrific. I mean, I'm very grateful to have gotten to the client side as well. And in fact, for the role I'm in now, one of the criterion was agency experience which surprised me. I thought, why? I mean, I know why it's valuable, but does anyone else know why it's valuable? But And what was the answer to that? Well, I think that as I'm in a professional services company now, advertising is, of course, a professional services 
discipline as well. And so the degree of client focus, the importance of clients, clients at the center, um, and the need to continually differentiate by virtue of the people. And what I say at Accenture is our people are not brand ambassadors. They are literally mm -hmm. the brand. Mm -hmm. Everybody, day yeah. in and day out. And that is also true, I think, in probably all professional services. Brands are really important for many reasons, but they are experienced through individuals. Yeah. You know, you talk about the arc or the evolution, but always the underlying uh, factor of creativity in, in anything that happens. One of the things that's intrigued me, I've had the opportunity to attend uh, Con Lion for the past several years and watching how that event evolves. It's a microcosm of the state, I think, of, of the industry. And one person in a very pithy way described it. It started off with the Mad Men, you know, ripping off of the, the show with the, the wild creatives. And then it became the uh, media men, which is all about exploring the mix. And then it became the math men, which is all about the analytics. But really, it's all of those. And then the thing that has really intrigued me is of late, you have the major consulting, strategic consulting firms that are now there, because there's an acknowledgement that more so than ever, marketing is a strategic function in an organization. It's not there to simply generate leads or build brand. And so going back to this previous conversation about being multidimensional, the marketer has to be able to master the creative and the analytical and the ability to be strategic. And that's a lot to ask of, of any one person or any organization. It is. And it was, I had this great moment with our CFO, Casey, who's fantastic. And it was after uh, a fairly significant meeting. And she said, and I was presenting actually our new uh, purpose and, and brand creative. And it was a very important meeting and it went well. And she said, Amy, you know, that's, that's like, that's great. And I said, but Casey, your portion was fabulous. She said, it's numbers. <laughs> it's, easy. Well, easy for her, but, um, but it was really, really interesting. Cause I look at what she does with, you know, very crisp, you know, modeled thought through, you know, perfection. And she looks at me and thinks, how do you do it? It's yeah. not, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of judgment that goes in, which of, of course is the, uh, the challenge of it and yep. why we are all marketers. Yep. Aren't we? <laughs> so, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Getting back to the condiment discussion, you shared with me previously a great story about your agency days and an important lesson learned. Do you want to share that one again? I will, Justin. This was like the key moment. This was everything I needed to learn about market research. I learned in a single episode, <laughs> which was uh, the client was Liam Perrin's Worcestershire sauce, which is a yes. fabulous product. Love you know, it. Incredibly well made in casks of wood, you know, wonderful real ingredients. And the question was how to increase uh, consumer usage of the product, because it tends to be something that you would like sprinkle on a steak or something. And so we, we put together a panel of experts, food professionals, a cookbook writer, professional cook, a nutritionist. And we said, what do you think? And they said, there is a natural pairing of tomatoes with Worcestershire sauce. The components of Worcestershire sauce make tomatoes even more wonderful. And so we did market research and we did a bunch of focus groups and did um, testing of, okay, what happens? Uh, you know, food doctoring idea. You open your pre-made uh, tomato sauce, spaghetti sauce, 
you know, put a little Worcestershire sauce, doesn't it taste better? Oh, yes, this is wonderful, everyone around the table said. And it was all people who were responsible for cooking dinner for their families. Mm -hmm. To the person, great idea. Would you do this? Yes, I would. So we went off, made some great advertising, started running the ads, and what happened to sales is nothing flat. Mm -hmm. And what we realized was what gets said around the table in a focus group setting is one thing, but driving behavioral change is quite a different matter. And so I realized, okay, massive grain of salt for anything that is ever stated. And the way I'm, I'm still using that, so if that was decades ago, still using it, when I look at our, for example, quantitative brand tracking, there is the stated importance of what's important when you select a professional services provider, and then there's analytically derived categorizations of what drives decisions around professional services provider. They are not the same thing. They are different lists. And to me, the list that matters is the one that's analytically derived via regression analysis because it force ranks and it really reveals what is associated with making decisions, not what you think you should be saying or what you think you are doing even. And I found that to be an incredible guide. And in fact, uh, there were there were learnings that were useful in how we understood our new advertising campaign, because we could look on that analytically derived what causes people to make decisions about professional services providers and its ability to help them handle change is one of them, which is one reason why we have let there be change as our brand idea. And you you were able to find the data that actually unearthed that insight. Yeah. Supported that. And of course, it was on top of other other data that that just indicated that clients for if there was ever a moment in time where you could make a transformation once and you could pick it and then do it and then be all set for you know a while, that has not been true now for years. And it's perpetual change, it's perpetual transformation. And that is what Accenture is uh, uniquely really, really good at. And so we had a couple of different data points. If you come out of B2C, where a lot of the research tools, consumer research tools mm-hmm. are born, it's that is also a fabulous education. And yeah. when I first got into advertising, it was back when we still had research departments, which then turned into account planning departments. But the research methodologies were very well developed. And I worked with some just absolutely fantastic consumer brands that were the originators of a lot of the consumer research techniques that are still being used. You know, marketing mix modeling, uh, the kind of regression analysis I was just describing. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. uh, it was, you know, I I loved it. I loved dealing with that whole, that whole space of what can you learn that's not being dated in particular? What can you observe? What can you look at and see happening? Your lean parent story takes me back to one of my early days in consulting before I, I got into tech. And the project that I was working on, we were we were launching a new young professional group for the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Their patron base was aging out. They had a very rich history, wonderful orchestra, outstanding director. They just couldn't bring in the younger patrons. And so the project was figure out how to draw these people in. And we did focus group after focus group. And as we sat down and we asked people, how do you want to spend your time? What kinds of things would you like to do? Well, guess what? Of course, everyone said, I want more classical music in my life. 
Yeah. I don't get enough of that. And we got so excited and we drove in hard on that one. We're like, tell us about that. What kinds of experiences do you want to have? So we came away and we had this vision of, oh, we can, we can revolutionize the way this is going to work. And I remember one of the first things that we did is we put an event together, fabulous, uh, fabulous piece, uh, set of pieces that were selected. And we thought through the event that wrapped around it, nobody showed up. Nobody showed up. And we were baffled because all of the research that we had done said this was going to be a home run. Well, it turns out that what people really care about, they care more about who's sitting next to them than who's up on the stage. And they care more about who's the event, are my friends there, and can I have a social moment with my friends to hang out, have some drinks together, enjoy the... And as much as we didn't want to admit that, um, that was the reality. And people were voting with their feet as opposed to with their mouth. So you're right. There's such a bias when you get what people think they should say versus what they're actually doing. So, so you, that was your Liam Perrin's moment, Justin. That was, yeah. that was. And I agree once that it only happens once and then you hopefully are a lot right. wary, more wary next <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. It's a lesson you don't actually have to learn all that often to have it be extremely, uh, meaningful and memorable. That's right. So you uh, spent time at MasterCard and as you said, got a a master's degree, so to speak, in B2C. I'm interested though in how you made the move to Deloitte. That was a little bit of of a detour from the path that you were on in consumer marketing. It was, and it started with a phone call um, from a a recruiter having to do with my, my prior job. And uh, which was at uh, another consulting firm. And I had literally no interest, none. She was very persistent, to her credit, very persistent. And it turned out that uh, the, the office was only a few blocks away from where I was working. And so I thought, well, I can walk three blocks, can't I, to get her off my back. And, uh, and I met the, uh, the partners, and it was a, a global, the, the global part of Deloitte. And they were fantastic. They were fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And I thought, well, I am not really clear on what Deloitte actually does, but I really like these people. And what turned out was they were looking for a subject matter expert to run the brand. And it was not an advertising job. And I had spent so much of my career doing advertising. And I thought, this is an this is a golden opportunity to do something that is not exactly what I've been doing. It, it's based on the skills that I have and I've learned and I use every day, but it's not exactly the same. I'm going to do it. And I did it. And it was an incredible education. And that background was what equipped me then to be where I am right now, which is dealing with every touch point that we have uh, globally in marketing and communications for a massive publicly traded company. And it's really, really interesting. Because it's, again, it's using everything I've used and things that I have done, but it's a context that is uh, quite unique. And only if I look backwards, I see how everything built to this moment. Can't claim to have planned it at all, even remotely. But in retrospect, it's like, oh, yeah. That all makes sense. That that all makes sense. It it kind of naturally led there. Who knew? That's Amy Fuller, CMO of Accenture. When we come back, She'll take us through how experiences from early in her career made her an even more effective CMO. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. 
Welcome back. Today, my guest is Amy Fuller, CMO of Accenture. Up next, she'll talk about the powerful partnership she's forged with Julie Sweet, Accenture's CEO. In the process, we'll learn why Amy has proven to be one of the key strategic advisors in Accenture's C-suite. Let's get back to the conversation. So great run at Deloitte, and that's really where you learn to build powerful brands. And then obviously Accenture. How did you land at Accenture? Well, who knows? How did I? (laughs) Where am I? What am I doing here? What am I doing? Um, uh, Well, the background that was uh, was being sought was adding a lot of ad agency and then other relevant, you know, big brands, because Accenture is a fantastic global brand. Mm -hmm. So it um, uh, when I look back at my uh, track record, both agency and client side, it's been great brands. And in fact, when I uh, interview people or give informational interviews to people who are just starting out in marketing, uh, and if they want advice, I always say, make sure that you're working with really good brands. Mm -hmm. Because that is actually the education that I was able to get over time was because the quality of the businesses and the quality of the brands that I was working with. And so learning the land of brands is you you learn it by doing it. And I used to joke with one of my favorite bosses from long ago that advertising is not a profession, it's a trade. Like you you learn it by doing it. And one of the trade aspects that you learn is actually, you know, what what a brand is, et cetera. Yeah. So so I think now you've built a great partnership with Julie Sweet, the CEO, and she has also done some phenomenal things at Accenture. Can you talk a little bit about the partnership that you've established and how the two of you are working together to further uh, the strategy at Accenture? Well, there could not be a better brand thinker and brand advocate in the CEO post. Couldn't exist. And when Julie uh, first landed in the post, which was September a year ago, um, she instantly got to work rethinking our business strategy as we had achieved the goals that we had set out in the prior business strategy. We had identified uh, many that we lacked a purpose. And to be a world-class anything these days, you actually do have to know what your purpose is and be able to articulate it. Mm-hmm. And oddly, that didn't exist. We had other things, artifacts, mission statements, but not not the purpose statement. And so that also immediately came to life as a really important project. And in fact, at that moment, uh, Julie said, well, what, what about the brand? Because our brand idea was new applied now. And I said, well, once we have once we know our purpose and our business strategy, only then can we answer the question of what about the brand? Mm-hmm. Because the brand is simply the tool of the business strategy and rooted in the purpose. So can't evaluate it. And in fact, if we have not been ready to migrate our business strategy to this new territory of delivering 360 degree value by embracing change, there was a lot of life left in new applied now, which corresponded to our previous business strategy, which we had achieved, which was all about rotation to the new. So the digitization of everything. And so once strategy landed and once our purpose landed, then we were equipped to understand what the brand ought to be and then go do that. And what was really wonderful is that 
Drogify was newly our agency, and they were also newly part of the Accenture family and had just become part of Accenture Interactive. And so they were completely new to us, both being of us and then working on behalf of their of the overall master brand. It was really, it was very, very interesting. And they are, they, they were and they are fantastic to work with. It was, it was incredibly productive. But just going back to the role that a wonderful CEO and brand-minded CEO uh, such as Julie is, the the way the best things have been happening, and I've seen them happen at Accenture, is a workshop approach. And so for purpose, for example, it was not go away, figure it out, and then sell it to Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. us. It It was workshopped. And it was workshopped over a period of months, and then we had COVID kick in in the middle of it and start. So it was the ideal way of working. I mean, absolutely ideal. You know, we did a lot of back work, a lot of thinking. We would come and we had a small group of others on the global management committee and Julie uh, at the helm and worked it through and tossed things out and looked as we would with any textual analysis at the precise words on the table and what worked and what didn't. And got to a place that when we got to the place, which was actually the last meeting we had together as a group, which was in Tokyo almost exactly a year ago, it was a unanimous yes. And it just felt right. Mm-hmm. Being able to work with your CEO at the table is 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 the only way to do it. It's really the only way to do it for something that's meant to endure for a long, long period of time. It was a gift. Well, there's a fascinating case study here. Accenture is over a half a million people at this point, global offices. Being able to influence and lead at that scale can be daunting, to say the least. But you've just laid out an approach that allows organizations at that scale, as well as much smaller organizations, to point themselves in a direction and then move in that direction. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, luckily, we were very skilled at working remotely, even before we had to work remotely, because all of the brand work, we landed the purpose together and then haven't seen each other since. And so that meant all of the brand work, the creative development was entirely remote. Mm -hmm. Still at this point, still a relatively new agency relationship. And I've never seen anything like it. And as you would know, Justin, typically creative work, you are together. You're in person, you're looking at work together, and you're looking at each other looking at work. (laughs) And to not have that, we had to develop special practices like saying, okay, I'm going to go off camera, not because I am making, you know, cruel expressions behind anyone's back or, you know, texting with, um, you know, some of my key people, but so that I can concentrate or my internet access where I am is not good enough to withstand video. So it took a few different techniques of of interacting with one another, but it was massively successful. And I have like concluded you can do practically anything virtually, remotely, practically anything. I've learned that people are incredibly resilient. You change the rules, they're going to adapt. Uh, There's a great quotation and I can't remember who to attribute it to, but uh, basically um, once something fires the imagination, impossibilities vanish. And clearly you had a, you had a 
very meaty project here, which is define our purpose. People were invested in that and they figured out a way to come together and, and make that happen. Let me play the role maybe for a minute of the the cynical one, which is everyone talks about purpose, 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 purpose. The purpose of a company is to make money for the shareholders. And if that happens, we're fulfilling our purpose. Why invest so much energy in defining a purpose that goes beyond that? So that is interesting. I thought you were going to ask a question in reverse, but I like this. I think most people in the States would have noted that the business roundtable in 2019, I think August 2019, did come forth with a, um, a renewed point of view. And that was that it was about multi-shareholder value in a nutshell. Mm. And so that that's interesting and important, I think, for starters. But where we have seen purpose go wrong is actually when purpose simply defines social impact mm-hmm. or the social values of a company. And I won't name names, but when you look at advertising that's gone wrong in that area, it is when commercial brands purport to take on big societal issues as almost as their purpose, because it's just not credible. It's just not. And so one of the things that Droga taught me was absolutely essential, which is a purpose does capture the who you are, what you do, and how you do it. And that means that it needs to be fundamentally based on what you do as a business. It needs to encompass how you work, which is where a lot of values and responsible business come into play. But it's what you are delivering. And so otherwise, don't count on it lasting or having the kind of credibility that you need for it to last. And in fact, so our purpose statement is all around what we are historically masters of technology, and then talking about how we deliver on the promise of technology and human ingenuity. And of course, there are a lot of values pieces within that idea. For example, there is responsible AI and not responsible AI. And so something that we help our clients with is responsible AI. And when you look Mm -hmm. at technology, there's a world of, of ethics around technology. And so we capture within our statement what we do for our clients, but also, you know, within that is what is important. And in fact, the business strategy around 360 degree value is tailored client by client, um, but it includes things like sustainability, carbon footprint, inclusion and diversity. You see endorsement of those ideas everywhere you look. I mean, you would have seen it a lot at Digital Davos uh, in January. Uh, the Edelman survey, which I adore, mm-hmm. has also renewed it somewhat in in real time in terms of what companies are expected to do, what CEOs are expected to do. And so it's all commingling in yeah. a way that I think is is good. I don't know that it's totally worked out yet, but I think it's a, it's a benefit. Well, as I went through the 2020 tw- trends report, this notion of just capitalism really stood out to me and the points you're making that we need to move beyond the obligation that we have purely to the shareholders and consider all of the stakeholders in the equation, the 360 degree value that you were describing. I think that in many respects, that is an evolution of of capitalism as we've traditionally learned it. And 
and, and maybe what Milton Freeman might have purported many, many decades ago. But the, the conversation has moved on. And that now, I think, is the crux of where we're at. I totally think so, Justin, because for recent years, I would always notice that when everyone, when anyone ever talked about just capitalism, the examples they used were always B Corps, always. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was always Patagonia. And then the other examples were always B Corps. And <laughs> that's like, okay, that's, that, that. I'm glad there are B Corps, but that doesn't make the point. The point will only be made when it is conventional corporations making the point. But I do think for some things, it's the business case is unbelievably crystal clear. Yeah. And certainly uh, diversity of your workforce, absolutely crystal clear in all aspects. And in fact, we had maybe two years ago, but we were told we were the first to actually demonstrate the business case of hiring people with disabilities. Mm. But the business case exists. It's true. And you can find similar business cases for kind of every aspect of inclusion and diversity. So I don't think they're decisions. I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a... Uh, in order to thrive, you must. Certainly well, true of sustainability. What I love about your points, too, is that they're all rooted in value that is created by the firm or the entity. At the end of the day, business exists, companies exist so that they can create some kind of value. And I do think you're right. That's when companies start to go far afield when they're purporting to have a purpose that is not rooted in the actual value that they're creating. And the nirvana state is, what are we uniquely equipped to be able to create in terms of value? And how do we marry that with a sensitivity to all of the different stakeholders that are impacted by that? Right, exactly. Well, Amy, it has been a wonderful hour to spend with you. We've we've certainly covered the ground. We've discovered the origin of Thousand Island <laughs> salad dressing, which I think was a, an important note to start on. And then now we're here we are talking about just capitalism and everything in between. I'll close with one final question, and that is, as you look back over the arc of your life and you had to boil it down to one thing, what is that one thing that has made the biggest difference? Okay, that is literally the hardest question I have ever been asked, and I'm not even sure it's fair. That's my job. I've got to hit you. You're you're tired. We've worn you down. Now we're going to get the real answer. The one thing. Be your own person. Great answer. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know what other people have said. <laughs> I have to look at all other answers to that unbelievably brutally difficult question. <laughs> I may have to call you tomorrow with different answers, by the way. I've thought all right. <laughs> you know, be your own person. I love that. We're going we're gonna to go with that. That's great advice. Well, Amy, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. It's been really, really fun. Really enjoyed being with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. 
visitpeople.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.